Todd Brinker. This is Back from the Brink, the after show from On the Brink on KCAA Radio. I will be joined shortly by Aaron Brinker, thus the name On the Brink. Wah, wah, wah. So, uh, you know, it was funny. We As we ended the show today on the radio, we played out with the song Sweet Home Alabama. And this shows you where we're at in the world today. She plays the song, and in, the, and, and in my mind, I'm going like, I love that song. And then I go, in fact, I said out loud, I love that song. And then I immediately went, uh-oh, is that a song we shouldn't be playing anymore? Is that a song that says something that might offend somebody? And you know what? I don't care. I'm sorry. I'm just to the point where it's like, if it offends you, tough. You know what? It's uh, You don't have a right to be not offended. If you don't like it, don't listen to it. If you don't like, If you don't like what you see, then don't watch it. You know, you don't have a right to be not offended. You know, there are things that I find offensive. I don't watch those TV shows. I don't watch. I don't listen. I don't engage in things that I find offensive. But I don't tell that person that they don't have a right to be offensive. We live in a free society, you know, and your right to swing your arms ends at my nose, right? That's the line is, you know, you have the freedom to do what you want as long as you're not hurting somebody else. Offending somebody is not hurting them. So, uh, I am, uh, I la B-A-M, Obama. So I'm looking up the lyrics to see if there is something in there that, that could be, uh, termed, um, you know, an offensive line about, uh, sweet home about, let's see intro. He goes one, two, three, turn it up. So that shouldn't be too bad. First one, big wheels keep turning, carry me home to see my kin, singing songs about the Southland, missile, Bammy once again, yes, I think it's a sin. And I think it's a sin, yes. Okay, so he misses Bammy. Okay, so calling Alabama Bammy, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Big wheels turning, so he's driving in a car or a truck, and he's trying to get home to see his family. Okay. Uh, well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her, Southern man. Uh, I heard O'Neill put her down. I hope Neil Young will remember her. Southern man don't need him around. Ironically, a lot of people think that they had a beef with Neil Young. They were actually friends. And so, um, uh, but they reference Neil Young's song, Southern Man, where he was uh, bemoaning the Southern man and his life. Oh, Aaron's joining us, so we'll move on from there. And I will stop dissecting the song because I imagine that's not great talk radio. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing great. Except I, I'm dr- oh, driving the filthiest car known to God and man. Really? I yes. thought it was my car. <laughs> I'm relieved. It's you. I thought it was me. <laughs> you know, as I walk out to the shack out back, I walk past my cars, and if I accidentally touch one, I make a clean spot, and I've destroyed a pair of clothing, a pair of jeans or whatever, because it's like, oh, my gosh. Now I have to go get changed. I knocked off about an inch of dust and dirt and grime. Yes. No, yes I, uh, like a, go ahead. I was going to say, you can find fossils on my car. Yeah. I, I have a, a, an older car that doesn't get driven a lot that's like an extra car um, that I recently got smogged and ready to roll again. And I just yesterday said, I need to go drive it because you need to drive it every once in a while. You can't let it sit or it'll kill the battery. And that gets expensive. You don't have to buy a new battery every time you want to go drive your car. There's 150 bucks. Um 
And so, uh, you know, and I, I know I need to disconnect the battery if I'm letting it sit. So, uh, but anyway, I need to go drive it. And I also thought, you know what, I'm going to drive it to a car wash because uh, <laughs> it needs it bad. Um, so I'll go put some gas in it and go drive it and, uh, and knock some dirt off the puppy. Um, you know, it was funny. I was thinking as we were leaving the radio show, you were playing Sweet Home Alabama. And I said, I love that song. And then the very next thought in my head was, I wonder if there's something in that song that offends people. Maybe we should be playing that song anymore. And then I kicked myself for even thinking that. It's like, dang it, people don't have the right to be not offended. You know? Yes. But 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 it is, I mean, it's it's it it is offensive. I mean it's a pro segregationist song. Is it? But I'm it actually is. looking I'm sitting here looking at the lyrics and I don't see that. In Birmingham they love the governor? Yeah. That was Wallace. Uh, okay, the very last verse they say, "Birmingham, we love the governor." Boo, boo, boo. Now we all did what we could do. The water, Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? So I'm not sure that's a pro segregation song so much. It is. Is it? Did you, do you? Are you okay with how you behave during that time period? Is what they're asking people. Uh, yeah. Okay. I. You know. That's that's how I read that anyway. Um, and then well, verse two is all about Southern man and they're, they're, uh, you know, shooting a zinger yeah. back at, uh, Neil Young, whom Neil people Young. always thought they had an issue with Neil. They were actually friends. They hung out with Neil Young. They liked him. Um, and that this was just a shout out back to him because he had recently recorded and released Southern man, which kind of bemoaned Southern men and their, their antiquated ways of thinking, you know? And uh, Neil Young being a Canadian, so he's going to come down and preach to the guys in Alabama on how to behave. And verse one was about, you know, big wheels turning, carry me home to see my kin, singing songs about the sass I'm missing oh, Alabama again. So basically he's like a, a trucker heading home. Or a, uh, he's on a tour bus heading home. Oh, there you go. Yeah, probably that makes more sense for a band. Yeah. Yeah, tour bus. Yeah. Why, why did I go trucker? I don't know. That didn't happen until later, right? <laughs> <laughs> convoy come on a mighty so, convoy ain't oh, you a beautiful yes. sight remember bj and the bear and that was all, all of that that whole era came about because of uh, Smokey and the bandit yeah yeah Smokey and the bandit basically created an era of truckers and and uh, cb radios and yes. uh come on good buddy get back you know i gotta be honest those movies actually hold up pretty well we watched it oh just uh, maybe a few months ago oh yeah and just laughed and laughed we just thought it was so funny i haven't seen it in ages maybe that there's something to add to my watch list is a uh, uh, bj and the bear or i'm Not sorry BJ and the bear, no, i'm sorry smoky and the bandit i knew i knew i said it wrong when i first <laughs> yeah bj and the bear was a tv show uh yes. which basically was well, you know what? Remember, um, Clint Eastwood did the one um, uh, with the with the orangutan. He did a series yeah, of movies. Yeah, any which way you let loose. Yeah, and right? any which way you can. And yeah, there was there was a couple yes. of them, and those were very similar type of movies. So that was sort of, and I don't remember which. I, I think you're right. I think the the Burt Reynolds movies kind of came first, but uh, Clint Maybe Eastwood I'm wrong, cashed but in. That was, that's how no, I remember it. Well, I, if if they didn't come first, they certainly were the more iconic of the group. Because yes. those are the ones that you're right. Those are the ones you remember. And it's interesting to hear that they hold up because some movies you watch, you remember from, you know, way back when and you go back to watch it and you go like, oh, eh. Well, eh. they hold up for me. Maybe there's a nostalgia thing. Yeah. Maybe if you if you're if our kids watch Kid, them, they yeah. wouldn't find them amusing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That would be the, the, the measure of it. Right. Is do they do they find do they find Burt Reynolds shtick funny? 
you know, because he definitely of had... just seen as the sexist pig that he was. Yeah, because he, he had a very specific shtick that he did. And yeah, did. it was very um, 1970s with the stash. Yes, totally <laughs> I think that was. describes it better than anything else. He, he, had the, he had the Tom Selleck stash before Tom Selleck. <laughs> but yeah. they both wore it well. They did. They did. You know, some guys, you know, well, you know, it helps to have that really the, the dark hair. Uh, of course, it goes all gray on you at some point. You know, yes. my hair, my facial hair and stuff grows out and it grows out about the same color as my kind of pinkish skin. And so at a distance, I just look like I haven't washed in like a week. You know, you step back about 10 feet and it's like it's like, why aren't you washing all that schmuck off your face? You know, and it's like oh, God, it's God. it's it's a beard. Oh, and you leave it there no, on purpose? You know? I don't think it looks like that. So, well, there's just not much contrast, you know? I'm just think I, I'm looking at it from the artist's eye. As an artist, as a photographer, <laughs> you know, I look at it and go, eh, there's not a lot of contrast there. Isn't and yet, I leave it there. You know, I've had facial hair on and off now for, and on more than off, for quite a long time, actually. And, you know, I mean, it's been back in as a style for a while, and it's something I, I kind of like. What it does is when I'm real fat and pudgy, the the chin hair makes my face look longer and thins me out. See, ah. that's the thought behind this. If my wife's listening, she's rolling her eyes saying, just shave that garbage off your face. Does she not like it? <laughs> she's not a fan. I like facial hair on men. So, you know, having said that, when Tobin shaves, it's like, well, I like your face, too. So we're good mm-hmm. either way. But... You know, if you were to ask me, I like a nice, clean, shaven mm-hmm. beard. I don't like a scraggly beard. I like a clean, shaven beard. Yeah, and I keep mine pretty short and clean shaven. I, once or twice, I've tried like doing the full beard, you know, and and first of all, it never fills in the way I like it to, and and then again, even when it does, you can't tell it's there because of the hair color and you know and the the kind of weird pink pulpy color of my skin, and you know, it's just I'm yeah. It is what it is. Let's just say well, I'm I'm not so overly confident that I'm a gorgeous looking guy. You know, not that I think I'm horrible and ugly and hide me somewhere under a bag either. But you know, um, you know, I, I think I'm. Realistic. I, I think you're a good looking guy. I'm realistic. So, I understand. <laughs> I no, understand what I'm working I mean, with. Okay. I get no, it. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't say that. I think you're a good looking guy. I I absolutely do. You know, so. not everybody likes the dark haired guys. Yeah. Well, I look like your husband, so that, you know, you're biased. Yes. You don't oh, count. Oh, well, yeah, but I chose him. <laughs> I chose him. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> you did. And, and yes, you know, you do somebody like chose me, so, you know, I guess I, I'm, I'm love worthy. You are. <laughs> you are. Yeah. And you guys have been married a while. Yeah, yeah. She choose she chooses to stay with me every day, so she must have been, you know. And you know what's funny? Be doing it's, something right. Yeah, you know it's funny because that's that's what it really is too. You know, people talk about what makes a successful marriage. It's like I get up every morning and I choose to stay married. You know, and that yeah. means that sometimes I put that person in front of my once, and sometimes they put me in front of their once, and and we manage to work it out. That's 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 what marriage is. That's what marriage is. You and know? you know, sometimes there's times where. You guys are not you guys. People who are married, a married couple's really in sync. And there's times when you're a little out of sync, mm-hmm. and that's just the ebb and flow of life. And yeah. the, the the key to a happy marriage, because when you when you get beyond the kind of out of sync periods, 
um, it's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about people like fighting and all the time and throwing things at each other. I just mean you're maybe not in the same place. Yeah. Um, you know you what can I'm talking support, about? Yeah, you, you support each other. And, and then there's yes. also times when you're just like, hey, I need some space. And you go visit your brother. So Exactly. And I know? know Tobin and I are kind of out of sync just because he's on vacation and I am working like a dog. Yeah, so. it sounds like you've just been swamped with with uh, work uh, in your uh, you work in the nonprofit sector and you know keeping your yes. nonprofit going and and just the you know you got to imagine that during this time all the nonprofits are working like crazy to keep themselves going. I say that and I I you know my my uh, swim team is a nonprofit and we're doing nothing because there is nothing to do. There's no pools, so I. I I, I get texts and emails from team members, you know, a couple times a week, and I send them back basically the same thing, saying, you know, sorry, I'm trying. There's no pools. Um, they're I frustrated. I am just I'm shocked that there are no pools. I mean, an outdoor pool, you think everybody would be fine. Yeah. It well, just doesn't make any sense to me that you wouldn't be fine. A lot of the pools are owned and run by school districts. And the school districts don't look at the pools as, oh, let's open the pools. They look at the pools as facilities, as a general category. And they feel like if they open one of their facilities that they need to open all their facilities. I don't know why they do, but that's how they look at it. And so they're saying, we're not going to open up our fields for soccer teams and baseball teams and our basketball courts for basketball teams and our wrestling rooms for wrestling teams and all these these youth sports um, because of COVID. And so we're just not going to open them all up, so we're not going to open any of them up. It's sort of the policy that most of the school districts have taken. Um, I think that a few of the pools that are owned by cities have started to allow some some groups back in. And I know some club teams have been allowed in, but they're allowed one person in per lane. So if you have a swim Which team... Is- Stupid. Yeah, you have a swim team, say, of 80 or 90 kids, and you have a 10-lane pool. That means you can, allow, you know, you have to run 10 at a time, which means you'd have to be there eight hours a day in order to get everybody cycled through the pool and get literally an hour of practice. Now, mind you, most reasonably good high school-aged swimmers, just a high school swimmer, I'm not talking Olympians or anything like just a high school swimmer will swim two hours a day. And like the high school teams in the area where my, my pool is in Villa Park, which is in Orange County, uh, is, you know, a lot of those teams have uh, 40 or 50 kids. Now, two hours a day times five, that's 10 hours that coaches would have to be using the pool. And they can't afford to pay coaches 10 hours that way. Me, as a small club team, I can't afford to rent the pool even if they would let me rent it for 10 hours a day because they're letting their high schools use the pool first. It's just, it's crazy. It's not sustainable. It's um, stupid. You're going to get COVID from, from the swimmer in front of you, his feet or her feet. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. For what we know about COVID and being in a, in a chlorinated environment and out in the sunshine, because uh, these are all outdoor pools for the most part in, or- in Orange County. Um, in fact, the indoor pools in Southern California are few and far between. There's, you know, I think, one at East Los Angeles City College. There used to be one at Belmont Plaza, but they tore it down because it was... 60 years old uh you know there just aren't very many so they're all outdoors which they say outdoors activities are one of the safest that you could do because the air is moving around and there's very little uh you know the 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 virus is broken apart by the uv rays and then in a chlorinated environment where the virus is broken apart because of the chlorine like one of the safest places you could be is in a pool 
And I know USA Swimming has sent out letters and, and people have sent out letters. And I sent information to my team to send out letters to county supervisors and school board members. And, yeah, nothing's happening. They're all terrified that something will, somebody will catch it and they'll say they did it. They caught it on school property at a school, you know, leased facility and sue the school because, you know, the, suing, you know, your little club team that there's no money there. They go for the deep pockets. So they will sue the school even if if you have your own insurance and, you know, protecting the school. The schools are terrified. You know, it's interesting because I uh, read an article this weekend about um, these these families in Florida, and this, I think it was on CNN, these families in, no, it was in Texas, uh, and the families were saying, well, if it weren't for the governor, my, my loved one would still be alive. They died of COVID. And, you know, you know, if they were just, you know, what is, what are we coming to where they won't protect us? And I'm thinking, dude, you were, you, at some point you were responsible for yourself. If you weren't wearing a mask or you weren't social distancing and you got it, it's on you. It's not on the governor to tell you how to live your life. It's on you to make the decisions about what to do. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm tired of this. Nothing's ever my fault. Somebody in the government should have told me what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to take the risk to go in a pool, that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who, like I said, on my swim team members who would love to be back in the pool and would be the first ones to say, yeah, I'm going to get my my kid's going to get back in the pool as soon as it opens up. And others are going like, well, I'll take, you know, wait and see. And it's like, fine, I'm I'm happy with the which, you know, I I totally respect the parents. Right. And, and in fact, expect that a parent would make what they believe to be the safest decision for their kids. Exactly. Um, you know, and uh as for, you know, opening up a facility, I would open it up as quickly as I could, um, given my belief and understanding about the transmissibility of COVID in and around a pool environment, which would be incredibly harsh for the virus. Um, by the way, too, I, I just wanted to share with you, my daughter uh, sent me a, uh, a graphic that shows uh, the chance or, or probability of contagion. And they show uh, a COVID-19 carrier with no mask in proximity to a person who's wearing a mask. And the probability of contagion is about 70%. So even if you're wearing a mask because it's not an N95 mask and you're not you know, wrapped up in, in a surgical gown, that if somebody who has COVID-19 is not wearing a mask, say, next to you in line at the grocery store or something, even if they're six feet away, you have a 70% chance of contagion because they're not wearing a mask. If that same COVID uh, carrier is wearing a mask and you were not wearing a mask, that drops to 5% because they're wearing a mask. Okay. Oh, interesting. And if you're both wearing a mask, it drops to 1.5%. So wow. you could just, I mean, look at those numbers and how much better it is if everybody wears a mask, you know, and realize that the COVID-19 carrier may not even know that they're a carrier because they may not have any symptoms. And so wearing a mask just makes sense. It drives me nuts when I'm seeing these people saying, I don't have to wear a mask. It's like, darn it, you do. You do have to wear a mask. Not for you. If you don't want to wear it for you, fine. But you wear it for me. You wear it for the other people in the society. Just like you wear clothes because I don't want to see your dangly parts. <laughs> you know, if the law if the law can say you have to wear clothes in public, the law can say you have to wear a mask in public. Get over it. Yeah, I I wear one. 
I'm not wearing one now because I'm sitting in my car talking to yeah, you. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, I don't wear I it when I'm driving either. Yeah, so, um, but when I go out in public, and mm-hmm. like I met uh, last weekend, I met a friend, Tobin and I met a friend for uh, for lunch at and, and sat outdoors at, at a Chipotle because, you know, that's what's where we went. As soon as I finished my food, I put my mm-hmm. mask on. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously you can't wear a mask and eat at the same time, but. Uh, um, you can't? No, you can't. That explains it. I, I tried the other day, and now I understand. <laughs> Although, did you hear the story of this crazy woman in San Diego? She walked up to um, a couple who was, they were not wearing masks. They were at a dog park, um, and they had a pug that was running around, and they were at a dog park, but they were eating while they were not wearing a mask. And they were kind of seated far away, like on the, they, they picked the farthest bench that was available. Apparently, you're not supposed to eat at this dog park, but they didn't know that. So this woman walked up and maced them, pepper sprayed them. Wow. Right? Wow. Un- Talk about an inappropriate overreaction. <laughs> it's like walk up and say, hey, guys, you're, you're not supposed to eat here. This is Well, first of all, it's a dog park. There's lots of pee and poop all over the place. Why would you want to eat there? That uh, yeah, seems I like no the idea. wrong place to be eating. But, but they chose to. I can understand them making the choice, but... You know, it's like the guy who the guy who 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 told the woman in in Central Park, "Hey, you're not supposed to have your dog off a leash here. This is a, a bird watching area, and dogs will run around and scare the birds." And right. and then she wigged out and called the police on him because he was African American. Yeah, I remember you know, that. It's like what an inappropriate, wrong response. It's like, no, just put your <laughs> stupid dog on a leash and go on your merry way. Yeah. Holy yeah. moly! I mean, and, and the woman who. Because it, it was a couple, and the and the, the the woman who was a victim, her husband got most of the pepper spray, but she got some of it too. Was like, wow, why didn't you just tell us? We would have moved. Yeah, I'd have sued her for assault. Well, as they, there were other people in the park who, because obviously they were trying to get the pepper spray out of their eyes, and so there were other people who saw her, this happen, who who snapped pictures of the of the woman who did the assault allegedly, and uh-huh. the. Yeah, I gotta say allegedly, and took a picture of her license plate, and so they know who she is, and so I think there's an investigation that's been started. But yeah. in what universe is that? Is that okay? Yeah. Well, in fact, I don't know. They even have to sue. I think the police will come charge her with assault because that's not. Ex- yeah, exactly. That's not. That's not right. That's that's not okay. Holy moly! Right? Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. Way to go, Karen. Jeez. Um. <laughs> Hey, you want to hear something positive that came out of Chernobyl? Uh, that sounds oxymoronic, but sure. Yeah, radiation. That's positive. It's positive radiation. No, what they found was, um, uh, like last year, they sent a robotic, uh, heavily uh, uh, radiation-proofed robot, basically, into the main vault to see what was the status going on inside there and, you know, uh, trying to figure out what's... In, and obviously, the radiation was, like, still ginormous and there's still reactions going on at low levels and are, are deep inside the vault and uh and there's you know it's basically a toxic mess but it came out with this mold stuck on it there's apparently mold growing in the high radiation inside the chernobyl vault which really? is concerning because the mold could also this the, it's a type of fungus um that that could actually cause damage to part of the casing and so they're concerned and they're learning about this fungus. Well, one of the things they learned about the fungus, it blocks radiation. Really? Yeah. So they took some of the fungus and they grew it in a Petri dish. 
and then they blew they they grew like a different type of fungus in an adjoining petri dish so that they could have like a control and they sent it up into the ISS and they basically have a camera now looking down at the two fungi and they have radiation sensors underneath the two petri dish dishes and they're seeing just how much radiation because we can measure the radiation that's coming through space because at the ISS there's no or very, very little uh, atmosphere from the Earth at that point because of the height to protect them. And so they're just looking at it, and they're finding out that it blocks radiation. So they're thinking, hey, wait a minute. We might be able to grow this stuff in a layer around our spaceships to provide radiation protection for our astronauts, especially for longer-term things like trips to Mars. Interesting. Isn't that amazing that there, A, that there's something living in a high-radiation environment, and B, that it may actually have some value to us and that it blocks radiation? Isn't that wild? Yeah. That is wild. It's, um, let's see, C. Spherospermum is, and, and, I'm, and, and I'm saying it very slowly as I sound it out because I'm probably still saying it wrong. Spherospermum. Sperm. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's a cladiosporum. That's what the C yeah, stands for. I don't know now, what C, that is, but okay. I, I, I don't, I'm not a fungi guy. You know, I mean, I know um, a couple types of mushrooms and that's about it. Yeah. I'm like, I only know what I buy in the grocery store. Exactly. You know, uh, it's interesting though. It's very interesting that they're doing this experiment with this stuff and finding that it actually has some, some, some value to us and that uh uh they're thinking also that they might be able to like combine it like there's been talk about when we when we eventually get people on mars that we'll use something sort of like a giant printer to build uh shelters in that it will use uh part of the um the regolith or the martian soil and mix it with some sort of a binder and then build like igloo type things so you can just build it up from the ground level build build you know one inch, then two inches, then three inches, and just keep going around and adding to it, sort of print the facilities. But now they're saying, well, what if we printed the facilities and we mixed in some of this this uh, uh, fungus, and then we've created some shielding in that same facility built right in? Okay, but they have to make sure that this doesn't get into your lungs and make it so you can't breathe or something. Yeah, yeah, there are some also nasty side effects of fungi, so... Uh, you know, and right now there's just a small amount of it on the uh, on the spaceship, you know, or on the on the ISS that they're testing with. So I'm sure there's a lot that they, that has yet to be answered about this. Um, but you know, if it's if it's encapsulated into the 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 building, um, it may be sort of like asbestos, right? Asbestos when it's dusty and floating around in the air causes all kinds of nasty cancer. Um, but if it's like locked into a tile, then it's fine as long as you don't break it up and turn it into dust so that it's something that people could breathe in. Um, so, I don't know. Anyway, it's just interesting. It's interesting to see that there are, again, I mean, this happens all the time. We find something in nature, like DNA, and say, hey, maybe if we used it this way, we could get some benefit from it. Here we are finding a fungus that's growing inside of it, a radioactive vault from a horrible, horrible disaster, and going, hey, wait a minute. This stuff has some some features and functions that are kind of useful. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a trip. 
and, yeah. and, and it does because you know they the the fungus has to metabolize something right i mean it has to have something that it feeds on right and you know so can it be used to reduce the radiation um not just block it but like can can in in chernobyl yeah is it absorbing the radiation is that what it's living off of yeah yes yeah i don't know i I have no idea um well, let's see. In the process, the bubble of fungi may actually feed on radiation by using pigments to perform radiosynthesis that converts gamma rays into chemical energy. Okay, so it works sort of like, um, uh, like in you know in your green plants, uh, your uh, you get the photosynthesis and the um, oh, what's the stuff in the plant that turns it green? The um, uh, my Chlora, basic chlor- 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 yeah, I was going to say chlorophor- chlorophyll, not chlorophorm, not chlorophorm, chlorophyll. Um, yeah, my basic science back, here is bouncing go back around to in high my brain. Biology. I know. I was like, oh, this is giving me a headache. Um, but yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, I just love it. When, you know, it's like when you say, oh yeah, we found this plant in the rainforest that you know, let's hope they don't burn them all down before we get a chance to test them because we found this one plant that actually cures types of cancer. You know, and you're like the juice. You know, you just squeeze this thing and then we synthesize this thing from it and then you inject it and cancer cells die. And you're like, huh, good plant. You know, wow. and uh, and now we're going, huh, good fungus. <laughs> you know. I mean, science is just so cool in that way in that it really is. A lot of times it's not create something from nothing. It's just discover how to use something that, that is already here. Yeah, that you hadn't even considered. You hadn't even. I mean, there are so many organisms on this planet. I, you, know, I, you know, I think about Mars, I, you know, more than, than the radiation. There's no atmosphere. So, you know, if you get a hole in your bubble or your pod, mm-hmm. pretty soon you can't breathe. And where yeah. are you going to make oxygen? They don't have any. Yeah. Yeah. And do we want to go on to a planet? And, I mean, it's one thing to go there and live and explore. and, and But do we want to go in there and really terraform? Do we want to change the planet from what it is to something else? And even if we do something, you know, we talk about, you, know, you see the science fiction movies where they, they have, you know, they populate a planet with a bunch of, fungi or something that can live in a super super thin atmosphere that create oxygen and and suddenly you know in in a hundred years we'll have an oxygenated planet well part of the problem is is the planet doesn't have a uh, magnetic a a magnetosphere a magnetic field around it because it's a uh, a solid core it doesn't have a molten core like the uh, like like the earth does that that spins and so there's no magnetosphere around it, which means there's nothing to protect it. So the solar winds will just blow the atmosphere out into space. So it's not like just, oh, we're going to create oxygen and make this a living planet. If we're going to live there, we're going to have to live inside of something. Because yes. there is there is no atmosphere and there's nothing to hold and protect an atmosphere on that planet. Otherwise, there probably would be an atmosphere on the planet already. And there's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a very, very thin atmosphere, but certainly not breathable and survivable by you and me without some, you know, pretty, um, pretty hefty packaging around us. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, it's one of those things where science fiction makes it look way cool. It's like, Oh yeah, we're just going to go terraform and turn it into, a, you know, earth too. And like, no, no, no. We're, gonna, 
We're, it, it doesn't it, work that way. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to change the basic structure of the planet. We're going to, um, uh, if we're going to live there, we're going to live inside of domes or underground or in some sort of um, buildings or, or facilities that we have to create. And, you know, and the issues that the scientists are working on is, you know, we're going to have to create them with materials that are there already because we can't realistically ship tons and tons of material to Mars from Earth. And so, you know, how do we best do that? And that's why they're talking about doing things like the the um, building printer, you know, using um, uh, printing technology, just like they do 3D printing here on Earth to make parts for things now, um, that they will expand that idea and do 3D printing using the dirt that's there with some sort of a binder. And so they're trying to figure out, well, what is that binder going to be? And, and maybe it'll have some, some mold in it. Mold from Chernobyl. Who knew? Who knew? That's kind of crazy. Really is, you know. And, and yay for them finding something positive about Chernobyl because there's not a whole lot there to be positive about. No. No. Um, i got to be honest. They've shown people have gone into that kind of no-go zone mm-hmm. um, and taken videos. And it seems like the wildlife is flourishing. Yeah. You know, the well, plant the, and animal life. Which it is, really is. kind of unexpected. And I, I just recently read that there's like a hundred and... 10 or 113 or so people who have actually moved back permanently into that, uh, the, just on the outskirts, not right up next to the, the, uh, plant obviously, but on the outskirts of their, their blocked out zone and, and nobody has stopped them and they're living there now. So, I mean, it's, you know, doesn't mean that they won't have lots of problems and health at some point, but you know, I guess in the new Ukraine, you have the right to be stupid just like you do here in the U S so. Um, booyah. Now, they did just recently start generating power. The last time they generated power there was in 2000. Believe it or not, they were still running the nuclear plants. Nuclear plant number four is the one that had the meltdown. They were planned to build a five and six, which they never built. But they did keep running one, two, and three. One and two ran through 96. Never mind, that's about a decade after after the Chernobyl, Chernobyl accident. And plant number three didn't shut down until 2000. Are you serious? I am serious. It's been 20 but years. But that means they had to have people working there. Yeah, people working in the other parts, uh, inside the, the zone, obviously. And, and inside, a lot of the buildings were, were um, like hardened and lead lined. So once you got to the building, you didn't have to wear stuff. Um, but I imagine they probably had to park outside the zone, put on radiation suits, get into a, a hardened vehicle, driven out to it to operate the facilities. But they were uh, operating the facilities till 2000. And just in at the end of 2019, they started creating power there again. But this time, instead of doing it via nuclear power, they've set up solar arrays. And so now they have solar arrays inside the, the uh, what do they, I can, we keep calling it the zone, but I can, they actually have a name for it. I can't think of what it is. But they have the exclusion zone, I think is what they call it. Yeah. Um, inside the exclusion zone where it's technically not safe to go because of radiation. And the, the, the estimates vary how long it'll be safe, somewhere between 350 and 10,000 years, which is a bit of a gap. But No kidding. But they measure it regularly to see what it's like. And they say, yeah, you can't be there. Or if you, can't, if you go too far into this zone, uh, you need to not be there for long periods of time because the radiation exposure is not just how much radiation you get, but how long you're exposed to it. So... 
But anyway, they've set up solar arrays and they're now creating electricity for like a third of the city of um, uh, uh, Kiev, which is the largest wow. big city in near there. Uh, well, it's the capital of Ukraine, isn't it? Right. And they, they needed power. They need there was a power shortage. That's part of the reason they kept operating the the nuclear facilities for long so long as they they needed power. Otherwise, there were literally blackouts. Every day they would shut power down in parts of the city because there wasn't enough power to go around for the number of people. So, you know, welcome to living in the former Soviet Union, right? Wow. Um, but now they're doing solar, which is clean power. You know, I mean, if you can't do anything else in the space, if people can't live there and it's not safe to be there, just set up a bunch of solar arrays out there because nobody will mess with them. And then you just send people in um, onesie, twosie with their, uh, you know, heavily... Uh, armored setups to go and do maintenance and cleaning. Huh. And they've got solar arrays there. Yeah, pretty cool. Again, yeah, well, I guess... Trying to make lemon out of, lemonade out of lemons, right? Because Yeah, that was uh, emblematic of, mm-hmm. of Soviet... I mean, that bureaucracy. I mean, it was bureaucracy that caused that problem. It was, yeah. Did you, you know, the egos that caused that problem did you watch the chernobyl miniseries i did wasn't that great it really really was i think for a lot of people and for a whole generation of people who weren't alive during that time uh it gave them a a real sense of a what the soviet union was like because i think you know a lot of people forgot what soviet union even means uh you know if you weren't alive during that time um, then you couldn't have even forgot it. You just never knew. You, do, you know, you read it in a history book, but you don't realize what it was like. But B, then the the that societal paranoia and how that fed into the disaster. You know, it was as much a social uh, disaster as it was anything. It was the way it was handled as a result of how their society was structured and the paranoia that existed. So crazy. Crazy, crazy. Um, uh, I, you know, like I've, I've talked about before, I lived in Central Europe when that happened. Yeah. And um, and I remember um, watching the news and the, the reports coming out of Sweden. At the time, uh, the, the Soviet Union was denying that anything had happened. That no, right. there's no, you know. The, it's like, the, but we're getting fallout on things, you know. Yes, yes. And it, it was... Um, it was surreal. Mm-hmm. It was All over surreal. Europe. I mean, even in the UK, uh, in Scotland, there were herds of sheep that the government purchased and 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 put down and buried because they had been irradiated. Yeah, we were told not to eat fresh vegetables or meat. Yeah, <laughs> which takes out a lot of the food supply. Well, you can even we could have stuff that was grown elsewhere and frozen and shipped in, but we right. couldn't have the fresh stuff yeah, because it all I'm, had stuff on it. Yeah, you but know? it was like fresh vegetables and meat, which is sort of what people eat, is vegetables and meat. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> sort of like, okay, so you now have to ship in all your food, which is what they did, you know. Um, yeah, and then the Soviets denying the whole thing because they didn't want to basically lose face to the world and, and explain that, yeah, they had this horrible, horrible accident, you know. They didn't want to admit any kind of failure uh, or weakness. Uh, but it became so obvious that they finally had to fess up because it was like pretty clear, you know, you could follow the winds and basically backtrack and say, here's where it came from. We know it came from this area 
hey, guess who has a big nuclear plant there? You know? Um, yeah, you know, and lots and lots of people, uh, you know, I mean, they, they only have about 300 or so people that died directly as a result of the, uh, of the accident. But there are, you know, thousands of people that have had issues since then as a possible result of exposure to that radiation. In fact, you know, I, I, a lot of people, the thing that they have is thyroid problems because that's one of the first uh, parts of the human body that get affected by uh, radiation. And so, um, you know, that's... So interestingly enough, and I, I'm obviously not in touch with everybody still, but the, with the right. women that I'm still in touch with who were um, uh, in, in uh, Austria with me for my, mm-hmm. my exchange year... Um, all of us have thyroid disease. All of us. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a coincidence. I don't know if they have family histories. I don't know. I have no idea. Right. But well, all that's of kind of where have... I was going with that was, you know, and I didn't want to pry into your health issues, but, but, um, I know you've talked about it on air before, so you're not, um, uh, adverse to oh, talking no. about it. But not it's, at all. It's, I'm open uh, about it. But having having you know been in Europe during that time, you know you've got to wonder: is that something that maybe was was uh, driven by that? You know, because your exposure to radiation was was higher. It, it's interesting. Um, I've I've read some articles about like the different radioactive isotopes and how far they carried on the wind, and some of the heavier ones dropped within a few kilometers, but then others drifted for thousands of miles, and they did. Uh, and and some of the ones that drifted for long period, and some have half lives of a few days, others have half lives of you know thirty years um, or more. And and so, you know, and as the crow flies, Austria is not far from Ukraine. It's really no, not. No, that's the thing people don't realize. You know, Europe is a long way from the U.S., but in the U.S., we don't think about the fact that you know. Imagine New, the New England states. I mean, you know, they're all sort of grouped together and not that far from each other, and that's kind of how it is. In Europe, it's all these different countries are, are are right next door to each other in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. uh, well, and the interesting thing too that I was reading about because I, I found some interest and was doing some other reading on this yesterday was that apparently it wasn't like radiation blanketed an area across Europe, like south facing south facing hillsides and air depending on like. Um, how weather, you know, micro weather happens in different areas, right? Like, you know, certain hillsides are, are the wet side of the mountain versus the dry side of a mountain and things like that, that different areas got hit differently. And, and so you could live in an area and be on one side of the valley and be fine. And the other side maybe got irradiated pretty badly. And it just, you know, and so it was like little hot spots all over Europe because of that. So like, you know, in the Scottish Highlands, you know, hillsides, certain hillsides, that happened to have sheep farmers on them were, were hit hard. And that's why they ended up, you know, getting rid of flocks of sheep and paying farmers off for them because, you know, we weren't going to use the wool or, or eat those sheep. Um, a lot of mutton, I guess, in, in Scotland eaten there. Um, uh, and in other places, you know, not that far away, you know, uh, you know, a couple kilometers, a couple, a mile or so away might've been fine. And, and of course, yeah. no way to know, cause you can't see it. You can't, hear it you can't taste it you know unless you walk around with a geiger counter um how do you know if you've been irradiated you don't you don't you don't scary stuff hey we're kind of running out of time today so um unless you've got more you want to talk about 
I don't. We are okay. out of time. Well, um, then we will see everybody again tomorrow. Uh, we won't actually see anybody. I'll just see the wall that I sit in front of when I talk to this little box, the magic <laughs> box. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm Todd Brinker. And I'm Aaron Brinker. Have, Have a, a great, great day, day, everyone. Stay Right after this, I'll be joined by my dad, Jack Brinker, for a Generation Tech episode. We'll see you then. Yeah, Skype. Don't we all hate it? <laughs> Second only to Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, except yeah, that Skype I actually need to use because it actually has value to me. Facebook, I can live without and do. Um, Skype, you know, I use that. That's how I get into the radio station. That's how I do uh, the remote podcast recording. Facebook, if it went away tomorrow and imploded, it wouldn't affect me at all. So, But it's so much easier to use and sensible. <laughs> Facebook is? No, no, no. Uh, you said Facebook. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Yeah I, yeah, I was saying Facebook. If Facebook went away, yeah, no. FaceTime, I would love to use. In fact, if, if Apple, you know, Apple, because of their security consciousness, basically locked down Facebook or FaceTime. You used to be yeah. able to use FaceTime to do what we're doing, where I could grab the audio from FaceTime and record. Um but they blocked that because of their security consciousness. And so it's no longer available as a tool for doing this kind of thing. So, you know, what I wish they would do is either use that same technology to create like FaceTime podcast app, which would allow you to have multiple people online and record their audio for you. Or um, uh, at the very least, use the uh, create a, a programming interface so that people could grab that audio as it comes in you know th what they would have to do is create some sort of a notifier back to the person though so that everybody on the call knows that it's being recorded let you know, me could, suggest something build the recorder I, right in i have an app called audio hijack have you ever heard of it oh yeah i've used it uh, multiple times and it's great yeah so you can grab audio anywhere that comes out of your speakers you know um, you can, then you have to pipe it to some sort of recording to record it as a file, and then you have to send me the file. And a lot of podcasters use something like that. In fact, there's there's apps called Call Recorder that a lot of them use, where they, you know, like, we'll have this conversation while we talk, but they'll also have Call Recorder running. And then you would send me your recorded, your end recorded, so that I would have your voice recorded locally and my voice recorded locally, and you get much better sound quality that way. Uh, and if we wanted to go through the trouble, we could do that. Well, but I haven't I used a, a, my audio hijack in a long time. Uh, but lately I got tired trying to download stuff from the web. They've changed things so that some, some things are difficult, but I can always audio hijack them. Anyway, I, I just started using it last week and updated it and stuff. I hadn't done that in years. Uh-huh. And... So now I've got a good working version. Yeah, no, it's it's a great app if you're dealing with trying to get 
audio and stuff on it uh, from Rogue Amoeba. So if anybody's yeah. ever interested in getting audio authors, I'm curious though, if they, um, like I know, like I said, part of the issue, I know that, uh, they talk about using it to record, um, Skype calls. I wonder if somehow FaceTime has been locked down and you can still record from that though. Because like I said, the FaceTime, a lot of people liked using FaceTime for doing exactly what we're doing, but you can't do it anymore because there's no hooks into it to record. Hmm. Well, I haven't tried that one, so I don't know. Anyway, in addition to that one, I bought it as a pair along with Fusion, which is made by the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rogue Media makes some cool I software. Mean Fusion. I mean Fission. Fission. Fission, yeah. Which is, which, is, which is an audio editor. Which is different than Fusion. It's, that's right. Fission. I, I, I always say it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to business. Back to business. So um, you had sent a couple articles of things to talk about, and I thought it was kind of interesting. First of all, uh, the idea of uh, the Wizard of Oz being recorded in DNA, the idea that they're now encoding data into a DNA strand and that you're now using a molecule to store the entirety of the well it's interesting they they didn't take like the a digitized version of the movie of wizard of oz what they did is they took the text of the wizard of oz and yeah. then translated it to encanto which is a made up language of based on the core languages of europe and then yeah, that's I, I what they encoded <laughs> which is weird I, I i don't care a rats what it is it's something data that they can store and recover i mean that's right. all that matters Exactly. I mean, but the, the their choice was bizarre. It was like, you're not storing the digital information from the movie, I guess, because that's still copyrighted. So, and maybe from the book, but if you translate it into Encanto, <laughs> it was a little strange. Or I'm sorry, I'm saying Encanto. Esperanto is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. 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 Which is a made up language. But anyway, yeah, the idea that they have figured out how to, uh, I mean, they had, been able to, you know, ever since they had like the CRISPR technology, they could uh, write chunks of DNA. That's something that they do with CRISPR, and it's affordable and relatively easy to do. But the problem was is that DNA as a means of writing is messy. It, it, it bits and pieces get swapped out, and it's not a a great way of recording data unless you have some sort of scheme that allows you to have some some sort of checks and balances, a checksum to verify that the data is being written correctly, right? Uh, they said that one of their solutions previously was just write something 15 times and yeah. then and then look at what the, you know, over the course of 15 writes, which one is the most consistent? That must be the right answer, which that sounds like a horrendous I mean, waste of space. That was a stupid illustration. I shouldn't even mention that. Everybody... Yeah that knows anything about computers knows that data quality and uh, all kinds of schemes are available for that depending right. on how your data is formed in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Right. That's a solved problem, but they were just trying to use that as an example for a lay person, I think, to understand that like, hey, here's one way of making sure that something is, is correct because when you're writing it and little bits and pieces keep getting dropped, but, of course, the best way is just don't drop the bits and pieces, right? Which is essentially what they say they've kind of figured out how to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, but it's very interesting. And the idea of now being able to take like the plans of of a device and encode that into DNA and embed it on the device itself. So that uh, or imagine like uh, embedding it into the manufacturing of an airplane, the serial number of the airplane. So if you get any part of the airplane, like the airplane that disappeared um, in the uh, in Asia a few years ago that they never found the parts to. And they think they found some parts that washed up on the coast of Africa, but they're not sure they're the right parts. Well, imagine if all those had DNA serial numbers embedded into the actual structure of the plane. You'd be able to know for sure. If you want to talk about this, do you want to record it and get it on air? Oh, I'm already recording. I started recording. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's. uh, but but to me, the whole uh, importance of all of this is the fact that I was not aware until I read this article that DNA basically survives pretty much everything. Yeah, that's tough. It's, yeah. And, and to me, that's that's an, uh, always been the, the soft heel of, of just about every storage thing that you have. Every storage has some vulnerability. Right. It degrades and, over time, and so you have to then copy it. Every time you copy it, it degrades. Well, that, that's one characteristic of a certain device and several devices. But they, they, every storage device has some different characteristics. Oh, about absolutely. It. I'm just saying that the, our standard storage today degrades over time so you have to be uh constantly like replacing storage media and duplicating what was on that media to new media to stay ahead of the you know degrading of whatever you're storing on right but then in addition to this stuff being basically invulnerable is the fact that it doesn't require a power source right Uh, you know uh, to 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 retain it, it's uh, I forgot what the word is now. Um, Involatile memory, unvol, mm-hmm. you know, no volatility. It's yeah, there it's you know. Yeah, well, uh, and as it stands today, this is not the type of of storage that you would use replacing a computer hard drive where you're reading and writing to it all the time. But if you well, write to something and you want to archive it, this is a phenomenal solution. Yeah, well, the one thing that they didn't mention, and it's always important, but not so important for our archive is the time to read and write. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, I don't remember any real yeah. details about that. Yeah. So, they didn't really share that with us. How long does it take to encode something onto the DNA? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be fast by today's standards by any means because mm-hmm. it's an archival thing, but by the same token, you, you don't want to be at it forever. You know? Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, just to give an idea of, of what, how dense this data storage is compared to, to current data storage, that they yeah. said that if we had 10 Walmart supersized uh, data centers that are using our current storage technology, so like the stuff that, that you know, Google or Facebook or, or Apple might be storing, these, these Walmart-sized places, 10 of these, is equal right. to about a teaspoon of DNA in yeah. terms of the amount of data that it can store. So that's just a phenomenal leap forward in the density of data storage. Yeah. So, so this is a, to me, uh, a really exciting thing. I love technology breakthroughs. I yeah. look for, and, and then when they happen, then I start dreaming about all the possibilities that opens up Right. because most of creation that, so what we call creation 
is not really creation. It's re-engineering of applications uh, for for that particular characteristic or device, you know. And yeah. uh, so uh, th- this is uh, this is just amazing and, yeah. uh, and absolutely marvelous. Well, they talk about the fact you know it's zero maintenance once it's stored. And that, you know, if you think about it, fossils have preserved DNA sequences after spending millions of years underground and becoming fossilized. Yeah. So it's like, you know, DNA is is really, really long term storage. Uh, and as you said, requires no energy, just a cool, dark place to hang out till someone decides to find it or use it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, you think about it, it's like, in fact, it was funny, I mentioned this, we talked a little bit about this on the radio show earlier today with Erin, and she mentioned, she immediately went to, you know, um, uh, biblical uh, references and said, you know, that the, the word is God, God is the word, and is, you know, is that the DNA of something, and and that, you know, this is the building blocks of life, and it's, you know, you, whether you believe in... in um, evolution or uh or or uh uh creative design or whatever your beliefs are you know the the advent of dna has stood the the test of time it's how we've encoded essentially everything on the planet that's that's right you know every living thing on the planet has is is encoded via dna i you know living because there's not to my knowledge there's not dna in like rocks and dirt you know inert substances but yeah, yeah. So basically, what we're saying is we have begun to arrive at the ultimate storage mechanism. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and we're essentially using molecules or or, or atoms uh, arranged into a molecule to to store stuff when we're talking about this. Yep. Right, and it's the sequence yep. of the four different atoms and how they hook together. Yeah. Now, as soon as you get to the biological side... Or atoms. I guess they're not really atoms, are they? They're molecules. Yeah. Uh, As soon as you uh, transfer from the the digital world and the technical side of this to the biology side, I'm a total dummy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The biological stuff is... In fact, it was funny because Aaron and I were, you know, scratching our heads trying to remember even some of the terms that were used for, like, high school biology, which is clearly, you know, this is way beyond high school biology. Yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, now you're dealing with with chemical reactions, right? There's the um, the the four different um, uh, um, what are they? They're they're called uh, they're not cores, but the four different uh, building blocks basically in the DNA: the uh, nucleotide bases, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and those all hook together in order to make DNA and it's just the order in which you put them together and if we can write them in a certain order we can read them back in that order yeah when I saw those kinds of words I had an instant brain block because I've never even I didn't take not high school biology or in college or anywhere ever I mean as times I've regretted that you know just the 12 the 12 of you who graduated from Cocker City High didn't get biology I didn't have to take it it's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the things have changed. I had to have biology in high school and I had anatomy and physiology in college and so, and, and some chemistry. And so, I mean, I've had, but it's all just the beginnings of this stuff. I mean, I, you know, 
would I never I ever know. pretend to to to, uh, to to say I have any expertise whatsoever. But it's a totally different world, isn't it? It is, yeah. And and uh, you know, I I don't know why, but even way back then, I said I don't really want to know anything about biology. It just doesn't interest me. So <laughs> I'd take anything else. That's and funny. I, I probably took intro to art or something instead. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, most schools, I, I assume even at that point in time, had some, some basic stand. You probably had to take some sort of a science class, but there might have been like a uh, a general science class where you just do like an overview of of sciences that is not in great depth, you know, I, but I gives you a breadth. By the way, I do have my cards. I could go figure out maybe what what I have. I know all my grades and classes that I took in each year. Oh, through school, you have your, your yeah. Grade? I have all I have all my grade cards from grade school all the way through high school. Wow. Well, then I I would bet that somewhere in there in high school you had some sort of a science class, but um, I know that a lot of high schools used to. In fact, when I was in high school, if you if you chose to, you could instead of taking chemistry and biology and physics or whatever, you know, you're the, the advanced specialized classes. You could take a, I don't remember what they called it, but it essentially boiled down to it was a general science class, and it it was sort of like an overview of all those things, giving you sort of a breadth but no depth, you know, just to say here's what this studies and here's some of the here's where we are in terms of the science and here's something else. That's, uh, and I think that kind of class is very interesting. Um, but if you were on a track to try to go to college, when I was going to high school, you had to have, have that stuff. That said, my daughter, uh, my older daughter anyway, uh, actually took genetics classes in high school to tell you how far yeah. things have come. Wow. They were actually like uh, looking at the DNA and running tests and extracting DNA from, from uh, fungi and other things. So, yeah, in high school. That tells you where we're at, right? I mean, that was like science fiction when I was in high school. Yep. Yeah, well, is is Jay with you now? Progress advances. No, no, she's not. Um, but she was talking about possibly calling in today, and she may do that at another time. She uh, uh, has uh, too big of a workload, and she's also working on her master's degree and ended up getting some assignments that she's got to get knocked out. So uh turns out she's not doesn't have the time to, to spend with us, but, but she might join us. I'm also going to put an invite out to um, my nephew, your grandson, Alex, and see if he wants to join us sometime. Although if he's going to do that, we might have to set up a time on a weekend to record because I don't know that he'll be available during the week because even though yeah. he's working from home, he does have work hours that are structured. So, um, But uh, anyway, we may have some guests at different times. But anyway, I found this uh, really interesting, and I think you're right. This is like a, a almost magical leap forward in terms of the the density of uh, data and how much we can store and how much space. And like you said, it has some very interesting um, um, uh, characteristics about this storage media in terms of its longevity, its uh, you know not needing any power behind it. It's 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 a very stable form of storage. Uh, but but it does pose questions too, you know. Like you asked some of them, like how long does it take to read and how long does it take to write? What kind of equipment do you need to read and write to that DNA? Um, yeah. You know, uh, and and what's the availability of that kind of equipment? What what's the status of that kind of technology? I know the CRISPR stuff is out and it's around, so people can write DNA pretty easily. Um, I'm assuming that's probably the uh, a, at least a derivative thereof that kind of technology that they're using to write it. 
but um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be very interesting to to see how one it of is. my one of my best friends, Joe Carl, who's passed away now, but uh, he was a bioengineer, so he would have loved this stuff to, this time, yeah. you know, where you basically interface electronics and biology and and yeah. uh, a lot of his work had to do with creating hospital equipment stuff like uh-huh. that, you know, automating stuff. Well, there's been a lot of people who have said that, you know, that that the uh, 70s and 80s and somewhat in the 90s were the years of uh, electronics. That's where computers and things like that became, you know, fascinating and grew up and that the the new future is really into the in the biologicals and that we'll see uh, leaps and bounds in medicine and and uh, things like the storage technology and things based on biological and that that's sort of the if you're really in if you want to be the bleeding edge of tech and really what's cool and going on in the world that that's where you need to be looking these days yep yep i'm sure it is uh it it appears that we're uh still making some pretty uh significant advances though just in the strict electronics world because of the sizing thing they I remember when I retired, which was over 10 years ago, 20 years ago now almost, uh, that uh, there was talk of, of hitting limits, you know, in terms of storage, uh, spacing, mm-hmm. because the chip sizes got so small. Yeah. That the electricity anything. traveling down chip, uh, a channel A on a chip would jump yeah. over into the next channel, and so you can't get beyond a certain size, Right. Right. But all of those problems are solved, and they kept moving on, you know? Yeah. There's always somebody who will think negatively and come up with things you say, oh, man, we can't go any further, and, mm-hmm. and get some voice out there, and somebody else says, hey, I got a way to deal with that. Yeah. It's just- well, they're saying that the next uh, Apple chip that's going to come out in their Macs and in their phones and stuff is going to be on what they call a 5 nanometer process, which just means that they're talking 5 nanometers between... Uh, is the closest space between uh, the lines of electrical circuits on this chip, which means they can make the chip smaller and smaller because the space between the lines gets smaller, so they use less energy uh, and le- and they get less heat because they're smaller, and uh, uh, and and so you know that's something that the electronics companies have been pushing for for a long time, and um, and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible how they keep shrinking. In fact, that's part of the issue with why they're leaving Intel, because Intel has been stuck at 10 nanometers and hasn't been able to go below that, and other companies have technology now that goes uh, even smaller. You know, it's it's a, been a wonderful time for me to live because uh, being an electrical engineer, I followed through all this. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, back when I uh, first started into uh out in the field after getting my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, I was still working with vacuum tubes in various places. A lot of most of the equipment, mm-hmm. a lot of vacuum tube radios and stuff, but semiconductors had just been introduced, and those were basically millimeter technology. I mean, you know, transistor on a, on a little, you, know, you reduce the vacuum uh, tube to a little can, you know, that right. side on. <laughs> and and that was all you could do is one device at a time, but you still had to assemble all this stuff on a board. Then, of course, when they went to integrated circuits, then basically you're starting to approach uh, micrometer, you know, a thousand times more dense. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, these are just rough terms, you know, about scale. But uh, then we went through all this uh, 
medium scale integrated, small, medium, and then large scale integrated circuits, and then basically uh, uh, to where we, were, we got down to large sets nanometers, yeah. but now they're getting down to like system on a chip things because they can put everything into that space. Yeah, and and uh, to have grown up through all of that, and 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 even managing a program is where we developed integrated circuits, uh, although. Uh, we weren't concerned about the size because we, in fact, had to build them larger in order to be nuclear hardened. They had to be made right. for yeah, different issues. Different uh, issues but, require but, different solutions, right? But nevertheless, I was in the, the the rooms where they actually manufactured these. Most of those chips, because they were so critical, were handmade. They weren't in an assembly line kind of an operation. Mm -hmm. But to be into those clean rooms and uh, and to see with a microscope, what you really had before the thing was buttoned up inside of an enclosure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with some nitrogen or something to uh, keep the air clean inside. Uh, anyway, it was uh, just an amazing career that I had going through these developments, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was so excited in those days, somebody said, would you like to go, go into the clean room? And I couldn't believe, I said, you mean I can go in? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I meant the program, you know, didn't even occur to me that I could go see these things. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, I, I I'm kind of the guy in charge. I guess I can go in and see it, huh? Cool. Yes, let me see it. <laughs> uh, so, um, did you? I, I sent you some links to some stories. Did you see the one that's titled uh, "Why Apple's Chips Are Faster Than Qualcomm's"? Uh, yes. Yeah, I I, uh, I saw the video. I didn't read the article, so I was going to do that this morning. But I got sidetracked. On yeah, else. I did the exact opposite. I didn't watch the video, but I read the article, and I think they cover a lot of the same stuff they, they usually they, do. I, I scanned the article and saw some of the same data. Uh, yeah, I tape. think that's that's usually how it works. But yeah. yeah, it's real interesting because you know, like if you look at the the current uh, Qualcomm chips that are out there in in uh, Samsung and other phones the uh you know they're using an uh eight core chip and now of course this this article is a little old it was written when they were on the uh moving from the a10 to the a11 chip and they've got the a13 in in devices now in phones and the a14 um uh you know to be released this year so this is an older story but it still does a good job of explaining you know where decisions were made by qualcomm on how to use their chips and where Apple made decisions that are different and why Apple's chips are 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 superior in most in mo most reasons and they're literally just talking about the CPU and it's important to understand that today when we talk about a chip inside of a phone that yeah. that it's an integrated thing it has a CPU it has a secure enclave it has a uh, something to manage the imagery and usually some AI to help with image uh, adjustments it has a graphics processing unit a gpu it has a modem and wi-fi ra uh, radios built into it it has uh, a a signal uh, you know digital signal processing system and audio chip built into it and a this, gps so all this, that built into one chip th this has gone far beyond what we used to refer to when i was still in the business as system on a chip yeah, okay. this literally is a system on a chip. The wires it come is. out, and the, the only reason there's wires coming out of this thing is to attach to screens and to 
uh, I/O devices, right? Mice and and networks and things like that. But let me give you the the sort the early system on a chip when it first started to be called that. That meant that now you integrated the I/O uh, controls, uh, the interrupt controller section. These are sort of were separate little chips, if you will, from the CPU. But you started pulling these things on the chip with the CPU, and uh, then in addition, then the last thing to be that was a big deal be put on there was the memory, and mm -hmm. that had to, that had mostly to do with the difference in processing. The memory was at that time uh, processed uh, much differently than the other logic segments of the uh, of the uh, chip. But and I don't know how they do that today because that was I was prior to that. Right. But you know, and in fact. You know, I read that article, and all the time, what it said to me was, this is the real advantage that a wealthy company has, because they did something that, from an engineering perspective, really didn't make any sense in, in the short term. You'd never build a, a larger uh, chip than you needed, uh, you know, and it was always about minimization and, and uh, things like all, all kinds of other considerations. But Apple, being the wealthy company that they were, they saw a couple big advantages. And the one was just to make, make a massive chip, however big you can find room for it in the device. Right. To me, that was the, the biggest thing as well, that, that they had the, the big chip, meaning that they were able to use more silicon, even though it was less, it was more costly for them to make their chips. Yep. But because they're making them just for one customer themselves... They said, let's engineer the chip to be the best chip we can. Let's not worry about, you know, making a chip that we can then sell to somebody and make a profit on selling it. And that's where they have everybody be because everybody else is buying Qualcomm technology or they're using ARM technology basically as designed by ARM. They're not really doing a lot of customization on the on the uh Exactly. Things. They leveraged all the unique advantages of their company. The, mm -hmm. the fact I started to talk about was just the, the, the dollars they could afford to do what that. Right. But the, the fact that was really important was because uh, of the memory caching uh, importance for performance. That's how they outperform other chips mm -hmm. by and large because yeah. memory yeah. caching is a very good way to gain speed because the actual right. storage speed is so much slower than the processing speed. Yeah, they have two or three times the the, the amount of cache built into their chips, uh, yeah. uh, storage, cache storage, than uh, their competitors. And yeah. so they're able to... The other thing that I thought was interesting is that they architected just slightly differently um, than, than the way most ARMs are built. The standard ARM idea is that you... Uh, increase your clock cycles and pump down a fairly narrow pipe. So the idea would be like a high-pressure pipe versus what Apple's design did was they very specifically said, no, 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 we're going to give ourselves a wider pipe. We're going to give ourselves more channels and run at lower clock cycles to keep our heat and everything down. Again, what that does is it takes more space on the chip. So they have to give up more silicon, which is expensive, which means that their chips are expensive to make. If they had to sell their chips against Qualcomm's, they would have to charge a lot more for them in order to make a profit. And that would be hard to do because most people are going to go, well, they both do the same thing. Why would I spend more for this one than that one? 
and and but Apple doesn't have to do that because they're going well. We're not selling them. We're we're just using them in our own things. So we're going to, you know, keep the power use down by making, uh, you know, higher bandwidth channels uh, for communication on the chip. Yeah, uh, about the time that I was retiring, which was just in the late nineties, nineteen nineties, or actually two thousands when I retired, I guess. Uh, they uh, in the tech world. There was a thing called RISC, R-I-S-C, and I right. forgot what the acronym stands reduced for. Reduced instruction set, uh, reduced instruction something, something. I don't remember what the SC stood for. Yeah, but that basically was this concept of wide words and going things and doing things in parallel right. at a low clock rate. Yeah, and that's so, what uh, ARM is, is a RISC instruction set. Right. Oh. Anyway, yeah. uh, a lot of that technology yeah. is, you know, was developed a long time ago, and it just made its way into being a standard part of electronics. Yeah. Well, I remember there were there was a big debate back in the '90s about RISC versus what came to be called CISC, but that was what was sort of the existing, um, more complex instruction set. And so, CISC was complex instruction set, and RISC was reduced instruction set. Intel, by the way, is the more traditional complex instruction set, um, and. Uh, you know, if you notice that, like, if you look at the comparisons uh, on um, CPU um, um, evaluations between Apple and, say, Qualcomm chips, the they they have a huge lead in speed uh, for the reasons we talked about, but they specifically have a huge lead in multiprocessor stuff. They're really going big in on. You know, we're going to have multiple CPUs inside of these things, and they're going to run things in parallel. Right, and will pick up a lot of speed that way, and and they do that exceptionally well, which I think is is uh, really interesting. Now, it's curious. I know Apple has a license to um, to to create the ARM instruction set. Now, there's nothing to say that because they don't sell their chips and they're just used in 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 house, that they couldn't. Uh, start modifying that instruction set and or or change it whole 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 hog if they wanted to um and then they wouldn't have to license uh from arm anymore the reason i bring that up is because arm has uh put themselves up for sale i guess softbank who holds arm has said that they're exploring the possibility of selling the company and essentially arm is just a technology and licensing company and apple yesterday came out and said they don't have an interest in buying ARM. Now, part of that's because why buy something when you've already got a license to use it as much as you want, right? They've got a really core license. They were one of the initial investors in ARM when they first launched. Yep. But it's, um, I know there are some people who are concerned about, well, what if ARM is purchased by a company that doesn't like Apple very much, um, <laughs> such as NVIDIA, who has expressed interest in buying ARM. Well, you know, uh, Todd, uh, companies like uh, Apple have another big constraint that they always keep watching, and that is they don't want to become a monopoly. There are so many downsides. Oh, yeah. Apple, Apple has actually engineered their business around avoiding that. Sure, because they saw what happened to Microsoft and how Microsoft got attacked by the EU and by the U.S. government, and they're saying, you know, we don't want that legal problem. Right. Yeah, that yeah. that's a, a smart thing to do. 
Yeah. Because because you otherwise you you you're mixing engineers and technology into the world of lawyers and legal legal stuff, and m once you get in that, that's a mire. I mean, yeah. that just yeah. ruins a company. Uh, I'm amazed that Microsoft got out of it as well as they did, because uh, that. That almost doomed them early on. Yeah. Well, from early on, though, Microsoft has been a company that understood and dealt with a lot of licensing. I mean, you know, they were the ones who said, we don't sell you software, we license software for you to use, that kind of thing from early on, because Bill Gates' dad was an attorney. That's um, just what I was saying. Yep. Yeah. So they had a lot of legal um, expertise from, from day one that a lot of startup companies wouldn't necessarily have, uh, you know, and so I... I I think at their core, they knew how to and how to hire how to hire lawyers, <laughs> which is a sad core core skill. But you know, um, uh, I think anytime you get to be a big company these days, you you know, in fact, even if you if you ever want to get to be a big company, as you grow, you need to hire good lawyers because you will get legal attacks every which way if you don't. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. My guess is, and I read an article um, uh, yesterday that that essentially said the same thing, that what will probably happen is if SoftBank does decide to sell, it will end up being sold to a consortium, and that Apple will probably be an investor in that consortium. They don't want to own it because, again, like you said, they don't want the legal yeah. headache of owning it. But um, a piece of pie makes sense. But yeah, they'll be. You know, they'll go in with Qualcomm, who they've sort of kissed and made up with, and maybe even even, um, uh, you know, NVIDIA, who they don't particularly like. You know, they've been those two companies have been butting heads for a while. But, you know, they'll go in with those companies and say, yeah, let's make sure that we, um, you know, don't let this don't let it get bought out by some Chinese conglomerate, I guess, is what they would probably well, want to avoid. They want to vote on the board or something like that so that they can provide some direction in, in right. the company in the future and, and avoid a catastrophe for them. You know, somebody yeah. does something stupid. Yeah, they don't want to have the, the, the core architecture changed in a way that then uh, causes problems for them since they license that core architecture. Uh, yeah, and so they, they'll want a seat at the board definitely for that. Just the science of uh, interacting with other companies and your subsidiaries and partners is a, is a science in its own right because uh there's a lot of stuff about that but then that's the lawyer's world <laughs> yeah you well have... you know so, lawyers and anyway, ceos you get to be the high-end executives and you have to worry about that stuff before we get too far from it we talked briefly about the risk uh, architecture in the sense that it was a very wide word mm -hmm. uh, i just wanted to throw out there something that a lot of people are totally unaware of and that is that uh, I had the good fortune to uh, join the uh, Strategic Missile Office while uh, Minuteman uh, missiles were still out there. And uh, anyway, Minuteman had one of the most fascinating computer architectures you could ever imagine. Uh, and that was, it was the first nuclear-hardened missile that we ever built. Mm. And nothing back then... Uh, I mean, the vacuum tubes would, would have been nuclear hard because they were real high current devices, but you couldn't fly those at high G's and expect them to survive. Right. Well, so, let, just let me stop you for a second. Just for those who aren't uh, uh, aware uh, and, and aren't, um, uh, you know, 
don't read about this stuff. So nuclear hardened. Um, there, when nuclear explosions happen, they create a large electromagnetic pulse. That electromagnetic pulse will fry small electronics. All the little bits and pieces that are in these little chips will basically be destroyed. And so if you don't have nuclear hardened things, airplanes fall out of the sky, cars don't start, uh, lights don't come on. And so um, the idea of, of nuclear hardening something makes it such that it can withstand that that pulse and still function. Right. In fact, back when I was first started doing that, we used to joke about, I, I forgot what year it was, where they first introduced some some uh, semiconductors into cars, into the uh, ignition system. Right. And and we said, hey, man, if you want your car to keep going after the, or during the nuclear war to get out, out of Dodge, you know, in a hurry, uh, don't buy a newer car. You've got to get some earlier than whatever that year was. <laughs> we used to joke about that. But it was true, you know. Once they started uh, to changing the car from a simple old contact uh, distributor kind of an arrangement right. to sparks to the plugs, uh, it was no longer, would, it wouldn't survive in a nuclear environment. Right. Yeah. And obviously, I, I'm talking about the electromagnetic point. There's obviously also you have to be able to survive in actual uh, high, radiation. high radiation environment as well. Uh, so there's yeah, well, more than one aspect to it. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the most important one, really, radiation. Um, but there's actually a really good novel that was very popular back uh, in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s called One Second After. And it's basically written uh, by a guy who worked in the nuclear field about what happens if a... Uh, high altitude um, nuclear explosion creates an EMP and takes out most of the electronics in the United States. And then after that, we then get invaded. And so what would life be like and what would people be like surviving in that environment? And it's yeah. obviously a novel. It's all made up, but it's made up with a guy who at least has an understanding of the actual science. Yeah. 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 I remember that article. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, well, anyway, it's, you, you read an article. Me, was, it's based on a novel that was actually written, and the novel became popular. And then because of that, there were a lot of articles written about the novel. But anyway, go back to your talking about the, the Minuteman missile and its nuclear hardening. Okay, the the um, single description of a Minuteman computer was is that it was a serial device, meaning a bit at a time. It was a bit stream that came in from a drum device. This was before disks. But the drum was one that was uh, uh, had was was able to be radiation hardened, so that the data on it could be read off, and after a radiation pulse and whatever, mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't be destroyed. And so you had this stream of data, one bit wide, coming off of that those tracks. Okay, mm -hmm. then the logic could actually make it switch to a different track, you know, as a subprogram. Right. So, but as it comes it off the track, like do this, you know, one one command at a time, step at a line. It's like reading, uh, reading down a book, right? Yeah, it's a group of bits at a time. Okay. And by the way, in order to make this program work, it was all hand coded in machine code, so you had to intimately know the hardware. Okay. And. Uh, and there were I've met a few guys who had actually worked on that coding. They were they were with TRW and and they stayed around in the company for years as long as the Minuteman was out in the field because that's 
that's what they had to do. Had to have people but, around who knew how to deal with it, right? Yeah, and uh, I recall having a course once where that was brought up in, a, in one of the engineering classes as to how you could actually process serial bits. Well, it turned out that much of my career in data gathering was gathering serial data out of flight computers <clears throat> because uh, a single bit stream could be encoded in a number of ways that uh, guaranteed the quality of the data and there, there was a couple standards out there for anyone who built a navigator for United States government uh, equipment like airplanes and whatever mm -hmm. uh, had to have this serial port out uh, so that you knew what was going on, what state you were in on the machine and and uh, it was kind of like a telemetry data stream mm -hmm. uh, so that you could track the status of the device and, and uh, in case of a failure then you could analyze it and figure out what went wrong. So uh, anyway, that was basically a serial computer and I had I had to take those serial data streams, get them onto a mag tape, which of course was a parallel device, sometimes a six-bit time or eight-bit wide code mm -hmm. uh, written, and then in the final analysis, stream them back out on the ground and, and look at the serial data stream to analyze it. So uh, I built a number of serial computers in order to do this, and so I was really glad that I had been introduced to that in college. But at the time that I was taking the class, everybody snickered and say, who, who would ever do that? <laughs> right. Well, it's, what, it's the case of where the design is dictated by the, the need of the, of the situation, right? And so right. When, you, right. when you say this A has to work, it can't fail, and B has to be able to survive in an incredibly difficult environment for anything yeah. to survive, then, um, you know... You, you you find a design that works, and it might not be the same design as a computer that you might, you know, sit down and start typing on a keyboard with because that has different needs, yeah. different now, the, design the reason, requirements. The reason that I wanted to bring this up is just yesterday, Mom and I watched a whole series of shows about airplanes and why they crash. It was on mm -hmm. the Weather Channel. I don't know if you've seen those programs before. I've seen some of them. I don't. I don't know that I've seen that one in specific or particularly. Anyway, they were talking about this, and they recovered the black boxes. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one sequence in there where they're, they've got the black box in the shop at mm -hmm. the uh, aviation in Washington D.C. I forgot what FAA uh, uh -huh. group that analyzes these things to find out what's going on. Right. And lo and lo and behold. That's a serial computer. <laughs> Which makes perfect sense because, again, it's got to be highly survivable. And, yeah. and, and so uh, people aren't aware of, of a lot of the uh, things that are going on out there because they are just special-use devices. Sure, you know? yeah. There's computers in lots of different things, but they're different kinds of computers based on the need. So. Anyway, yeah. I, I wonder if someday if we can get the, if we can get the writing small enough, if the device that writes to it small enough that it could fit in a black box, if they would be writing to DNA at some point because it's so survivable. Well, that's what I was going to kind of bring up next. Is that tie that it back to the <laughs> to do with the DNA writing? I don't know. Yeah, but and I don't I don't know what size the device is that does the DNA writing. It might be something that you know fits in a lunchbox right now. It might be something the size of a room. I don't know. My yeah. guess is it's not the size of a room because nothing's the size of a room anymore. But 
you well, know, unless it's a unless it's a collider or something like that, right? Well, most of it starts out that way, Todd. It just takes a little while. To, That's true. You know, but I'm just saying most things aren't that big anymore because we yeah, don't need that size technology. because the electronics that run it are all now smaller. Um, so things that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago might have been room size and are now smaller. Everything now starts out smaller to begin with, but then it even gets smaller, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we've often talked about how funny it is, you know, the, the phone that I carry around it has so much more processing power than the first computer that I ever had. And mine was, a you know, a desktop computer that was, um, I don't know, the size of a stack of maybe 10 pizza boxes. You know, yeah. that was about the size of my first computer. Yeah. In fact, uh, it kind of takes me back to when you were a young kid and I'd take you to all these computer shows. And we kept looking for smaller and smaller hardware with larger and larger storage, right? Yeah, yeah. We well, say kid. I was. Uh, we we started doing that probably in high school, but yeah, uh, but we were going to those computer uh, swap meets. And I remember. Oh, I know I've told the story before. Um, remember they had um, they came out with run length limited encoding on the hard drive, right? And right. Um, and and in your PC at home, you had. Uh, a 20 megabyte hard drive and right. we were at a computer show and I was looking to buy my first hard drive up to that point my computer ran on a floppy disk and right. I was looking for a hard drive and I found a 40 megabyte not gigabyte megabyte hard drive but with an RLL controller oh, I could go to 60 megabytes and yeah. I was like yes so when I bought it, I bought because you had to buy the, the the drive and the controller separately because you know that's the way you yeah, did it. And, then. and in the early days of that stuff, why RLE was you know like a big marketing thing, right? But yeah. today, you know, they're using that in the devices, but it's just hidden. It's there. Yeah, you know? it's all it's all in, built into one. You don't buy a separate controller anymore. The controller is attached to the device, um, you know, and they're completely different methods of writing controllers to when you're talking about solid state storage which is the way everything's going so you know different mediums so there's different issues in terms of redundancy and read writability and things like that but uh yeah technology moves on it's pretty amazing hey you know we were talking about um uh survivability in radiation and i sent you one uh, other link to a story i don't know if you had a chance because i sent it just um like at eight o'clock this morning but uh they found some mold so uh, apparently um, they sent a robotic device that had been nuclear hardened into the Chernobyl site inside of the, the cement casing to see what the status was of the still ongoing meltdown that's happening in Chernobyl. Remember, this happened back in the 80s, and there is still nuclear reaction and huge amounts of radiation going on inside this thing. And so they went in to check it by sending in this device. When the device came back out, they found that there was this mold on it that it had scraped off the wall as it came out. So they, they've started looking at this mold, and not only was this mold living in a completely uh, radioactive environment, I mean hugely radioactive environment, but it was growing and living there. And they found out that it feeds off the radiation and that it actually blocks radiation. And so they took some of this fungi that they found and they got another just regular fungi, put them in adjoining Petri dishes and sent them up to the ISS and then put radio 
uh, they pointed it towards the sun and put uh, radiation sensors underneath and cameras watching them grow. And they found that this fungi actually grows based on the radiation that it's absorbing in outer space and blocks radiation. That They might actually be able to use this fungi as a radiation well, shield <laughs> when we're going to be trying to go to Mars. Is yeah. that not amazing? Yeah, that's interesting. That's really I mean, interesting. To think of like, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of positives. When you say the word Chernobyl, people don't go, oh, yeah, that was kind of cool, you know? No, that's not what people think. But that was there's, very uncool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yet here's something that's come out of that that's actually kind of interesting. That there's actually a fungi that can, which also begs the question, you know, when are we going to come across life somewhere else? Because obviously life can take place anywhere. I mean, well, let, let me tell you what it is, Todd. It's just it's just a wild dream of mine. We remember we were talking about DNA at the start of this. Uh huh. See, there's there's DNA in this stuff, and DNA is not dumb. You know, we don't have to call it smart, but we know it is. Yeah. Because it encodes a whole lot of stuff that creates as it uh, as our body grows into a unique human being, but with some common characteristics mm-hmm. of other growing things. Yeah, well, and, all growing things have that DNA in them, but not the but same DNA. DNA. But I'm saying there's DNA for humans. There's DNA for each species. We're saying the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That there's DNA everywhere, and it is sort of the root of life. So anyway, you want to finish your thought? Do I want to finish what? I said, do you want to finish your thought? You were saying DNA is the in oh. all these things, but then you didn't. I, I kind of cut you off. Well, I'm I'm saying that this particular uh, discussion we had had to do with using DNA as a memory device. Right. But I'm saying that uh, I think there's some computing components to it that they're not a, not uh, talking about yet. I mean, it just hasn't come out. It wasn't the purpose of this article. Uh-huh. But uh, I'd like to see a discussion of that because I'm certain that it's there. Okay, so when you mean uh, computing, you mean like in natural DNA as opposed to this DNA that, that their structure that they're building artificially as a storage place. You're saying in natural DNA or in just the, the, the basic DNA construction that there is some computing and processing. I'm saying that this mold that you, you were telling me about is some evidence that there was some smartness that it says, hey, I got something I can feed on here. It's called radiation, but right. by golly, I can use that. Absolutely. What's this? You see? Well, DNA seems to be the source of, of life regardless, right? And it'll find a way to, it will adapt and, and form the right uh, species or plant in order to grow. Because that's what DNA does, is it grows. Right. It's life. It is. Absolutely. No, I, do, I don't disagree. In fact, you want to go even a step further. DNA is basically a strand. It's sort of like a biological serial computer. Well, it's a helix, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure I understand that the, the message of why it's a helix, but I'm sure if we study it enough, we'll figure it out. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating area of science that's it's going on right now. Obviously, we're learning more and more about about the DNA molecule. But but, I mean, did you hear what I said there? Though it's like you were talking about serial computers. Well, serial computers are a stream of information. Well, what's a yes. DNA strand? It's a stream of information. That's right. 
And, and so, so in, order, in order to use it somewhere in your body or something reading that, right? Right. Well, what if it is reading itself? Yeah. What if what that if? very shape, because, you know, the, the issue they were trying to solve was that when you write something in DNA, it doesn't always encode exactly as you intended. It changes itself. Mm-hmm. Right? So DNA is yep. changing itself. It has some, you know, I don't know if you want to say consciousness, but there's, it's, it's built into that shape and that design is something that will change. And over time, it'll continue to change until it takes the form of whatever it needs to take to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Blows your mind, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it's just really astounding when you think about it. Um, uh, well, you know, and, it's, it, and it's amazing how our, our conversations on multiple topics all today tie in so well. It's as if we planned it. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, because I really didn't. I mean, you know, you sent the DNA thing. I found the thing that talked about comparing Apple to Qualcomm and and then uh, uh, just happened to, as the radio show was closing today, stumble on this article about Chernobyl mold that could protect astronauts in deep space. And so I thought, you know, hey, that's interesting to talk about. We'll just add that to our list. And holy moly, all of it ties in. Yep. You know, yeah, and you brought in the serial computing yeah. talk. and it's And it's like... Wow, science, life, God—it's yeah. it. You know, it it, it just it, it fits on so many different levels um, that uh, you know it just boggles the mind when you sit down and start thinking about it. You just like wow. Well, that's that's. Uh, I think uh, you. I think I heard you say God there. I threw God in because you know it's when you start talking about DNA and DNA having a a consciousness to strive towards replication in life. You know, a a person of faith has to see God's finger in there, right? Absolutely. In fact, you see, uh, my, my story about this is once I, once upon a time I read about how do you know whether man has been involved with the moon? uh, There for a while after man, after we had actually landed on the moon, there were people looking at the photographs, which weren't that good, and they saw things in them that prompted somebody to write a story about how do you know uh, if man had previously been there or an intelligent being. And the first first thing they said is you will notice some thing, geometric things. Okay, you look for a corner of a house or a block or something. Now, yeah, one things that indicate man-made or, or thoughtfully made. But if you find multiple corners or multiple circles, okay, those kinds of, of, of edges uh, in a photograph, because we're talking about a two-dimensional image here, then you start, you get enough of that, and pretty soon the evidence is preponderance of, of preponderance of evidence is that this this is not natural. Okay, mm-hmm. because you can go take pictures all over the world of various earthy things and have it search for uh, surfaces, and they they, they they go wild. It's not yeah. very many, you know. Well, you know, you, there are those there are those who say that that's also uh, proof that that the whole thing was faked because some of those shapes that are in reflections of the masks of the astronauts and stuff indicate that this was done on a soundstage. 
that's right. There's all, always mistakes that can be made. But now I, I just set that was just a setup for for the God creation thing. Uh-huh. OK. Uh, and basically, I'm saying the the smartness that we see embedded it down to the molecular level certainly had nothing to do with man's doing. OK, all of what we call uh, creation is discovery. It's only discovery. That's all we've ever done on this earth. You know, mm-hmm. we give people credit for creating things. We mean from an engineering standpoint. They took what yeah. was there yeah. and we, molded Yeah, we took building something. blocks and made new things from the building blocks. That's correct. But, you know, all of this evidence mm-hmm. that we're talking about of the DNA mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, yeah. that was, yeah. is, is, is almost an infinite variety of things once we start. Mm-hmm. You know, down this train. The other, there's a, another example that we haven't even touched yet, and that is sea life. What's what's deep in the deep oceans? You know, we're just starting to probe the outer edges of some of this stuff. It's vastly different. Another mm-hmm. one is that I saw discussion the other day where people were, I think, two and a half, three miles down in the deepest spot in the earth. It was an old well, or, or excuse me, an old uh, mine. That had they had finally abandoned because it was 120 degrees round the clock down there, and people just couldn't survive it anymore. Right. Yeah. Some of those really deep ones, as you start getting closer to the mantle, right through the crust of the Earth, gets really, really hot. Right. And anyway, they found life down there, three miles under the Earth. Mm-hmm. Never had been exposed to to light other than the helmets from the people that worked there. You know, and. So life is a ph- pretty phenomenal thing. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, then there's no water around either. That was the other mm-hmm. thing. Uh, how does life exist without water? Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, it's, time, it's easier of, with water. So that's why they go to Mars and look for pools, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, uh, most of the life on our planet has been, uh, uh, around and through water and so that's yeah. why they think that like um one of the moons of uh, jupiter i think uh i can't remember ganymede or io one of those is supposed to be um they believe there's a lot of underwater ocean there and they're talking about sending probes there at some point yeah well anyway my point is is that the further we go in science in all kinds of different directions the closer we get to understanding that this was a created thing by a, an infinite mind, and that's that's exactly at least the Catholic Church description of God. They don't they don't uh, you know go off on some imaginary thing and imagine what Hollywood would think would be God. Mm-hmm. But the definition is just all of this. It's creation, right? Creation, yeah, it's like you know, we can build lots and stuff, lots of stuff with the Legos, but who built the Legos? Yeah. Right. And and in a sense. You know, you stare at that wonderment, and if, and, and if you're again, if you're a person of faith, it's not hard to look at that and say, that was not an accident, you know. Yeah. And yet, you know, there's people who say, oh yeah, that just happened. That just, you know, you mix enough well, chemicals, and eventually you're going to get something that comes out looking like that. And it's like, well, if that's the case, how come we've we've been mixing chemicals for you know a long time? We haven't ever gotten anything like that. Yeah. Well, well, the other thing I will say about it, you, you brought up faith. There are some people who look at that totally differently. And, and uh, for one, uh, Catholics don't 
uh, say it's an unsupported faith by large uh, I don't know if we're the only one but of all the religions on the world we we rely more on reason than just about anybody else that's why the church built a lot of universities and got basically started science back historically if you look at it and there's still thousands of Catholic scientists out there most of them are Jesuits because that's yeah, what there that was a time there was a time during the dark ages when most of the science in the world was being done by Muslim universities because they too feel that way I think if you talk to a lot of religions they will say that they're based on a lot of of uh uh, fact and understanding of the world around them and that it's not all uh, you know magic and angels right so you know faith is we're not denying faith faith is absolutely essential but right it, but you also about, don't deny facts in front of you right a brick is a too, brick too often <laughs> it's talked about like you you believe it a hundred percent on faith well that's totally mm -hmm. wrong yeah okay so yeah, that's the old story about and and I don't I, I not that I, I don't want to talk about this, but but we're we're kind of a, a trying to talk more tech stuff, so I don't want to go too far into a faith conversation. Um okay. and, and and we've been at it an hour. Um okay. uh, and so it's probably time to kind of wrap up today. Um uh but I mean if that if that's something you want to have a conversation about, we can maybe set up a time to do that and have that as a separate conversation because people might find that interesting to listen to. Whatever you think your listeners want to watch, Todd, it's your yeah. show. But, uh, well, it's our show. I mean, we kind of work it together, you know. Yeah. But what I'm saying is is that we kind of go, we're doing this on the premise of being a tech thing. And, and you know, sharing our faith is, you know, is part of who we are. We want to talk about that a little bit. But I don't think that that should become a dominant theme in a tech show. Sure. <laughs> Unless we're going to call it God on tech, in which case then we're taking on a lot of uh, <laughs> responsibility. Um, I'd be more comfortable calling it Todd on tech than God on tech. So <laughs> I'm not going to speak for the big guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I a really neat conversation on on a lot of interesting things today that tied in a lot of ways that that actually led to a conversation about God and faith, because, um, you know, when you're getting down to the nitty gritty of, you know, the 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 makeup of all life in the in the in the universe that we know of, um, you know, doesn't mean that we won't stumble across something somewhere else that's maybe built a little differently. But, uh, you know, and getting down to the DNA and imagine just actually using that as a storage medium is just phenomenal. Technology is just an amazing and wonderful and entertaining thing to see. Uh, you know, if we if we could all manage to not like, you know, beat each other up because one of us has, you know, feels they should wear a mask or not wear a mask or or, you know, I, I'm allowed to protest, but you don't want me to protest. And and uh, and if we can, you know, manage to get past covid, uh, then uh, lots of cool stuff. happening. Talk, talk and tech is a breath of fresh air these days because uh, if I can get away from uh, anything called politics, uh, I'd like to oh my go borrow. <laughs> Isn't that the truth of it? You know, it's like I am so happy to not be talking about what's going on in the world outside the shack outback because so much of that is uh, political and arguments about literally how to deal with disease and germs. And it's like, that shouldn't be a political conversation in my mind, but it, but it, somehow it has become one. Anyway, By the way, we, we could have a show uh, sometime, Todd, on basically the implications of technology, among them being Facebook, Twitter, and the kinds of uh, things that they brought about in the world, you know? Sure, yeah. 
I think I mean, that um, uh, from from a, from back in my days at a newspaper, I used to have uh, some fairly heated discussions with people on the editorial staff about them believing that they were just reporting on the world and me trying to tell them that everything that they reported and how they chose to report it affected that which they were trying to report on. And yeah. and they would not buy into that at all. And I was trying to tell them, yes, it is absolutely a fact that you changed the attitudes because of what you publish in this paper. You you were accusing them of violating what they learned in school. <laughs> I I know, you know, not having gone to um, to journalism, uh, journalism school, um, I was just applying logic to this to the situation, and they were like, no, we're not going to be logical. We're going to be journalists. <laughs> That's, the, that's really the problem today. If, if if all of them had adhered to the rules, we wouldn't have a lot of this. But yeah, the, well, the, the problem that, is is that the professional journalism is has disappeared. Yes, and now everybody because, is a professional entertainer. Right. Yeah. Anyway, no. thank you for uh, inviting me on, Todd. Enjoyed it. Thanks. We'll thanks for joining me. We'll do it again next Monday. Okay. Bye now. Have a good one.